So we're going to read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling, for, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, the resurrection. The resurrection is the foundational piece. I know Christmas gets more uh, marketing dollars, but the resurrection. If Christ doesn't rise, Good Friday is not good. If, if, if Christ is not risen, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we are most to be pitied. We might as well shut the church down, sell the land, and watch football on Sundays. Because if the resurrection did not happen, Christianity is a lie. Simple. If it did happen, you have no reason to object to it any longer. So, this is the, the crux of Christianity is based on a supernatural event. Um, of course, Canadians reject supernatural things. Well, not really. They say they do, but they really don't. Uh, they only do, they reject supernatural things that can contradict their own views of how they should be living. But one of the things I've noticed about, about skeptics, because I was one of them until I was at college, is we have a lot of objections to Christianity that are parroted arguments. Truth is, you don't know why you're objecting. You, you think you have an objection because you think the Bible is full of contradictions, as I did, and when somebody would say, well, name some contradictions. I would then say, well, there's so many, it's not worth saying. <laughs> and, that's, and that's just me being honest, because I had this impression that there must be contradictions in it, because everybody I thought I was cleverer than me thought so. And, but I had to be faced with the fact that I rejected something that I actually knew nothing about. I was lazy intellectually. Lazy. I just didn't want to do the work, as most Canadians don't want to do the work. And I find that to be problematic. And... When we look at this passage in Mark, Mark is wonderful. If you read the Gospel of Mark, and one day we'll go through it, one day we'll go through all the books. And when you go through Mark, you begin to realize Mark doesn't mind you having questions. He doesn't try to answer all your questions. He prefers to raise the question and then pull away and leave you feeling really awkward and forcing you to wrestle with the silence in, in that he leaves. And he does it here as well. Because you'll notice, I stopped reading at, at verse 8. And if you look at your Bibles... Verse 9 to 20 is in brackets. Or maybe there's a note ahead of it, depending on what kind of translation you have. Do you know why? Because verses 9 to 20 are not Scripture. I may be shocking you, but here's a simple fact. We know with all certainty that verses 9 to 20 were not written by Mark because the earliest transcripts don't have anything to do with them. We know when they were added later on by monks and scholars. and we, So we have it in there, but we put a bracket and if that's offending your Christianity, you're going to have to get over it. Because the reason that it's added is unfortunate. But the reason, the way Mark actually ends it with them running away from the tomb terrified, and that's how he ends his story, 
is brilliant. Brilliant. And I know why we tried to add things to it, because we wanted to tie a bow on it. But it's a wrong thing to do. So we're going to try to look at the text here and say, why is Easter presented the way it is in Mark? Very different than the other. Well, not different. It doesn't contradict anything really in the, other, in the other Gospels. But why does he choose to end the story where he does? And as we do, we're going to see that Easter, for Christians and skeptics alike, issues a challenge, it offers hope, and then it asks or demands, well, I guess it asks a question, but the question demands an answer. Okay? So there's a challenge, a hope, and a question. So the challenge. What is the challenge? John Ortberg is a pastor in California. And he tells a story about how after a service once, uh, a young lady, or not young lady, a woman in the congregation came to him and confronted him. And she said to him, Pastor, why do you waste your life and your time reading Sigmund Freud and talking about him on Sundays? Why do you, you have the Bible, the source of all things. Why do you waste your time and our time giving us quotes and, re- and wrestling with Sigmund Freud? And Ortberg got a little defensive and he said, well, a few reasons. The first reason is Sigmund Freud was brilliant. Regardless of what you think about his views, he was intelligent. Second, the things Sigmund Freud said and did impacted not just the time he was alive, but continued to influence how we all think about the world. And because of that, it is right and good that a pastor and a preacher wrestles with those things because he needs, I need, to know what it is that makes you think the way you do about life, gender, identity, everything. And so he said, that's why. And he said, then he turns to the woman, he got a little snarky, and he said, have you read anything by Freud? She said, no, why would I? He said, then you automatically have no saying to refute him. If you haven't done the hard work of trying to understand him, be, be courageous enough to say, I'm not going to then wrestle with him. And I bring that up to say, not just to defend, I think, why Christians should be reading things like that, but how it is that the world treats the Bible. Most Canadians do the same thing with scripture that that woman was doing. Oh, by the way, he, he then ended that story by saying that was the last time his mother ever spoke to him. <laughs> I missed the punchline there. You see that one? But, um, <laughs> but, you know, we do that with the Bible. Skeptics do that with the Bible. They say things like, well, I don't need to wrestle with the Bible because it's been disproven. Of course, they can't tell you how or why. They just say it's been disproven because celebrities I know think so. Celebrity physicists say so. So maybe it must be untrue. There's suffering in the world, so it must be untrue. And they use that as an excuse to not wrestle with the Bible, with the real questions that it has. And let me say this. That is not just lazy, but it's irresponsible. And I know, again, I'm accusing me here. I was that guy. Not only is it lazy, because you haven't done the work to know what you're refuting, but it's also irresponsible, because there's not one document or idea that has influenced Western and the world culture more than Christianity. And so, as a Canadian, if you say, I'm not going to bother worrying anything about the Bible, you're kind of being a fool, because you're not trying to understand why it is that this country and this world is the way it is, because Christianity has influenced it. It's actually an irresponsible approach. So my call and the challenge of Easter and of Mark in this passage you're going to see is to challenge you to say, grow up, wrestle with it, take seriously. If Christ rose from the dead, then it is literally a matter of life and death for you. And are you going to leave that decision up to something clever you read on Twitter? or you can actually investigate it. I, unfortunately, well, for, no, fortunately, at the time I thought it was unfortunate, I decided I'm going to investigate it. And I was surprised to find it was true. So, that, so there's internal evidence in Mark, but also external reasons for this challenge that forces us to grow up and approach it like real responsible people.
The internal evidence in Mark, I think, is we often miss. First, have you noticed in chapter 16, verse 1, he mentions these Marys and Salome. Mary, Mary, and Salome. The reason it's curious is if you're reading the whole book of Mark, in fact, just read chapter 15, in fact, just read the eight verses before that chapter, you're going to see that in eight verses, he says their three names three times, as if we're going to forget Mary, Mary, Salome, Mary, Mary, Salome, Mary, Mary, Salome. Why does he repeat their names over and over again in such a short time? And there's a great book by a guy named Richard Bauckham. He's a Cambridge scholar who uh, wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he goes into ancient literature and he realized something. He said, you know, the reason Mark does what he does and the, the gospel writers do what they do is they're not recording legends and myths. Because when you record legends and myths, you don't do this sort of a thing. Ancient, ancient texts never repeat names in this sort of a way. And he said the reason he's doing it is because in the ancient world, you wouldn't put a footnote saying, I got this story from such and such a book or this, this person. Instead, Mark puts footnotes in his story by naming the people and says, it's Mary, Mary and Salome, you know them. They're still alive, go talk to them. And so all through the Gospels, we're seeing evidence that they're eyewitnesses and that Mark is saying, these people, you know who they are. They're still alive. You can go ask them questions. And so Richard Bauckham comes away and many, most scholars have now looked into it, realized that these are eyewitness accounts these things actually happened. But then it's even more interesting what Mark does because he, the fact that he uses women at all is shocking. Um, it's a very countercultural way of looking at things because think about this. The resurrection's testimony all through the Gospels is women who witnessed it, not men. Women who witnessed the resurrection. And this was uh, embarrassing for Christianity to admit in the ancient world. One guy, Celsus, I mentioned him a few weeks ago in one of the Revelation series, Celsus was this ancient um, skeptic who debated Christianity, hated Christianity. And one of the things he would say, ladies, I'm sorry, was saying that the resurrection is only corroborated by hysterical females deluded by sorcery. Because it was embarrassing. Because a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in court. And so when the Christians would say, I believe in the resurrection, and the ancients, they'd say, well, on what, what grounds? They would say, well, we know these women who saw it. They would laugh. Come on, women? Women? In fact, Origen, who was an early church father in debates, would be told that um, his opponents would mock him for believing the gossip of women. It was, it was insulting. So here's the reason that this is internal evidence for the resurrection. If Mark is lying, if he is trying to spin a yarn and gather followers, you know what he does? What every other lie of the ancient world and modern world does. He says, you know who witnessed the resurrection? Kings, scholars, wealthy people, because, and men because you want it to be as credibly witnessed as possible. So the very fact that an ancient writer would leave this embarrassing detail in the gospel, that women saw it, that the only reason you would leave an embarrassing fact like that in the gospel is if it's true. And that is, an over, I think, a, a very compelling reason to believe the resurrection. You don't need to get into science. There's plenty of other reasons why we can argue this. So that's in some of the internal evidence. But let me go to some external evidence, because if Christ didn't raise from the grave, you have a, it's Ricky Ricardo, you have a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> we have lots of splaining to do. Um, is that racist now to say that? I don't know. I'm sorry if it offended anybody. Hopefully it didn't. Um, so, because here's the question. When every, Christ wasn't the first, Jesus wasn't the first guy claiming to be the Messiah, right? The, just like today, there's plenty of street, street corner preachers who claim to be the Messiah. And 
One of the interesting facts, however, is every other time those messiahs came and then were executed, their movements died. And yet when Christ dies, the movement explodes across the landscape. Explodes. Why? Is it just because people were deluded? Are, are we going to now, as a skeptic, this I, have to be, I have to bear this question, am I going to dare to say that the entire world was transformed by a lunatic? That we're all so stupid and so deluded as to fall for the, this, this shyster? Is that really, is that really where, where we're going to go? Because if that's the case, let's look at some, so just a couple things because we can't say everything. The second most translated book in the world is Pinocchio, believe it or not. 300, 300, translate, 300 different languages. Currently, the Bible's been translated into 3,000 languages and counting. They keep adding to them. There's still about 3,000 more, apparently, that we have to translate into. Why is that? Is it just because people are deluded? Is this because there's, listen, there's been plenty of lunatics in the world and they haven't amassed this sort of a following? Why did Christ amass this following? Was it because it was fake, a really good lie, or is it because it was true? But let's move even further. There's this wonderful book, if you're Irish, you'll love it. It's called How the Irish Saved Civilization, and um, <laughs> written by a guy named Thomas Cahill. And he makes this wonderful point. He says, you know, this is how the Irish saved civilization. After the Roman Empire fell in the, sixth, in the fourth, well, fifth century, it fell. But come the sixth century, remember, Rome gets trashed by the Goths, Visigoths, Huns, and all them. And then, as a result, in the sixth century, they historians believe there was not one library left in Europe. Not one. Because the Visigoths, see, they were just, there was no plan for the future with, the, with these raiding bands of Vandals. They're actually called the Vandals. Um, they, they had no plans. So they didn't plant for long term. They didn't have any use for libraries. I just had to drink, eat, and be merry. So there's not one library. But in Ireland, there's a group of monks and monasteries. And they decided, you know what we got to do? We have to go out and we are going to procure, preserve, and copy every scrap of paper we can find. And Christians went out and gathered every book that was falling around. They bought it if they needed to. They preserved it. They copied it. Every book. And not just the Christian books. They took the books even that were Aristotle, Plato, critics, guys like Celsus. We, the reason we have Celsus's books and his mocking of Christianity is because Christians thought it was worthy to preserve. Christians did that. I wonder if today the same thing was to happen if the skeptics and our government would preserve Christian literature or say you know what, let's let it die. Let's just let it go. But Christians did that, and he says that's exactly how we saved civilization, because we knew that it was worth preserving human knowledge, even the ones that disagree with us. And so all of this happens. The reason you can read Plato and Homer is because of the church. Okay? So if you're an ancient, you love those books, I love Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad, thank a Christian, not me, a Christian, an Irish Christian, preferably. So that's that. And not just that. These monasteries then give way to universities. And the reason universities start to sprout from Christians is because Christians understand... Here's the irony. The assumption was ignorance breeds atheism. Isn't it funny? Today it's the opposite, right? Ignorance breeds Christians, we're told. But in the ancient world, it was very much assumed that if you're not educated, you're going to fall for anything. And you need to be educated to see God's world, his creation, his scientific... Everything. And if, if you did that, you would be protected from the enemy's wiles. And a very blatant example of that comes in the very first movement in the United States to have mass education, to have everybody be educated in public education, was in 1647. And the name of the act was 
old deluder Satan act. The old deluder Satan act. And the assumption was, he's a deluder. And Satan looks for the stupid, looks for the uneducated. And he preys on the uneducated mind. And if we're going to protect the mind, we must educate them. It's a Christian idea. And someone has come to me before, a skeptic friend of mine, and says, come on, man, you're telling me we wouldn't have developed universities without the church? And I said to him, interesting, you're supposed to be the scientist. You believe in facts, not, not speculation. I can't tell you what might have happened. I can only tell you what did happen. And that is that Christians did it, nobody else. That's what I know. I'm not saying nobody else would have come up with it. I just know they didn't. And that, why? Is it again, was this basis of education that most of us have graduated from a college? Thank, thank a Christian for that. And in fact, don't thank a Christian. Thank Christ for that. And do we just say, oh, it was just because we, we were all deluded, we fell for a ruse. Thank you for the, for the universities, but it's all fake and a lie. See, as you begin to look at the impact of the resurrection and people who believe the resurrection, the impact they had on the world, it becomes more difficult and you become a little bit more silly when you start saying, it must be a lie. Because look at what the resurrection has done. In fact, I'll say it's a couple more things just to, to really point it out. Technology. Technology saw its greatest rise prior to the last 100 years or so, 150 years, was, would have been in the time of the monasteries because those were the bastions of education and time and things. And what you find is things begin to really ramp up. So for instance, the, um, the windmill grain press, right, to grind your grain with, uh, through a windmill, that, that was created by Christians. Why? Well, it's done because they realized the first people in human history to differentiate between work and toil were the Christians. And they decided work is good because God did it. But to toil is not always necessary. So let us use our intelligence to work rightly so that we'll have more time for prayer and for doing good. And so they developed that. Um, eyeglasses were developed by monks in monasteries because they were copying all these books in the Bible and their eyes were going because they were reading by candlelight. So they create eyeglasses so they can read scripture. Um, clocks. Clocks were invented by Christian monks. Why? Because they needed to keep track of when to pray. And all of these things you now enjoy, and we enjoy, and we can just say, Christianity's a bunk, it's all silly. You're being naive. You haven't done the hard work, and I don't blame you for it, because I was one, but you're now sitting here listening to me. I encourage you to go do the hard work. If you're going to reject Christianity, go for it, but you better do your work. I hope you would do the work, because as you look at it, the case continues to build. Now, I have, let me, actually, let me use one, no, I won't do that yet. Let's move on. First thing, first challenge of Christianity, or of, of Easter is this. If this is all a lie and a fraud, prove it. That's the first challenge. Second thing is the hope, because there is great hope in this story. Now we're going to delve into the text much more. So it's quite ominous the way Mark leaves things. The women are lamenting that they're, um, they're women, and they're not physically as strong as men. So they get to the tomb, and they realize who's going to help us roll away the stone, because the men are all hiding. <laughs> so it's quite a somber story. It gets, it gets more somber, too. But, you know, in Mark, women have a really elevated position in the Gospel of Mark. They're mentioned seven or eight times in the, in the book, uh, and they're actually given a pristine reputation right until the end, because all through the Gospel of Mark, the disciples fail. They fall, they struggle. Women are depicted really quite well. They're, they're there at the beginning. They're there at the cross. They're here at the resurrection. 
So as a reader, if you read it right through, you may be tempted to be optimistic. It's like, okay, the guys are gone, the screw-ups, the women are now here, things will be good. It doesn't go that way, because women actually show they're just as human as men, sadly. But, so when women get there, here's, look at what happens. The first thing is this, they come with spices. The fact that they come with spices says that they know or they think he's dead. Despite the fact that after chapter 8 in Mark, when Peter says and confesses, I know who Jesus is, he is, he is the Son of God, the Messiah, after that point, Jesus repeatedly tells him he is going to die and rise, die and rise, die and rise. And yet, he even says on the third day at times, and yet the women show up at the, temp- at the tomb ready to anoint a dead body. It's almost like they didn't believe it. Like we, I, and I understand that, but that they didn't get, they didn't believe the resurrection. So let's avoid those arguments that the ancient people were fools who believed anything. They didn't. They didn't believe in the resurrection because it was ridiculous to believe in. So they show up expecting to anoint a dead body. And then the angel tells them, hey, take this message and go and tell the disciples this. And the women run in the other direction. There's, we're left not knowing if they said anything. Of course, we know the rest of the story from other acts and other things. But the women just run away at the end of Mark. It's ironic because all through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling people, don't tell anyone who I am. Shh. But they keep blabbing it. And now he says, go and tell everybody. And they're like, I'm not saying a word. I'm not saying a word. So it's, 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 it, it's intentional that we're meant to see these things. Now, where is the hope then? Because it's pretty grim, but there is hope. And here's where it is. What message would you give to people? If you're, if you're giving this angel, this, this, this being in the tomb, a message to your people, what would you give? I'll tell you what I would give. I would say, thanks for abandoning me on Good Friday. I found 12 other dudes who will be faithful. You guys are, I'm, I'm done with the disciples. That's what I probably would have said. Um, I'd quickly fire them and find others. Put a posting on, you, on Instagram and that would be it. But Christ doesn't do that because what he does instead is he calls them to do what he's been saying the whole time. When, in chapter 1 of Mark, he says the, the message Christ comes with is repent, right? Repent and believe for the kingdom of hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now at the very last words in the book, it's the exact same words because what he's saying to them is follow me, meet me in Galilee. And in order to meet him in Galilee, what they must do is repent. Repenting means to turn from something to another thing. You must turn from running away from me at the cross on Good Friday and, fo- and run towards me, follow me. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? It requires incredible faith because they have nothing but his word. See, it's not like the other, the other gospels where there's more evidence. All they're told is, meet me in Galilee. And the question we are left with is, will they go? But we'll answer that in the next point. But the hope here is this. Even though they ran from him, notice he doesn't rebuke them? I would have. He doesn't say, thanks for Good Friday, by the way. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just says, follow me. Follow me. And not just follow me, he then says, I have gone ahead of them. He has gone ahead of them into Galilee. So, yes, he's gone physically, of course, into Galilee, while they're, and he's way awaiting them. But symbolically, he is saying, I have gone ahead of them. I've gone ahead of them into death. I've gone ahead of them into their failure. In every way, I have gone ahead of them, and I've done something to prepare them for this. And here is the hope and the power and the motivation of every Christian. You are motivated by the fact that he doesn't rebuke you though you sinned against him, but instead says, just get back on the track. Follow me anyway. Follow me. Keep following me. Keep following me. 
And that grace is the motivation we have to be resurrection people in the world. And the reason we can do it and be these people who are resurrection people in the world restoring things is because he has gone ahead of us. And because he has prepared the ground in our workplaces, our homes, our communities, our families, and our hearts, we can then do the hard work and actually see resurrection in some way in our world. And one example I would give of, of somebody, there's so many, of people who become resurrection people is a guy I'll just call Alex. Alex created a, a, an app. And I'll, you can put the screen on. I mean, it's not much to see. It's just an app. But this app, is, it started as being called Our Tribe, the letter R in tribe. And it became this thing called Four Streams. It's a mental health app. He, he developed it years ago when before mental health apps were everywhere. And he's a Christian. And basically all it, is, all it is is if you have mental health needs, you can go on there and find free resources. People volunteer their time to, to do counseling and what have you for any number of things. So it's, it's, a, it's a helpful app. And when he was asked, why, like, what are you developing this for? His reason was brilliant. He said, I looked at the cross. The cross was a piece of technology created by humanity to kill. But the resurrection transformed and restored that technology into something life-giving. And so, I as a Christian can look at every piece of technology we've created, no matter how miserable it is, and there's a way to restore it. How do I use technology and bring it back and, re and resurrect it to make it a piece of restorative power in our community? And this is the hope. Because we have seen the resurrection, because you've experienced the resurrection, you then have an imagination for resurrection. Because you've seen your life transformed, you can then look at the broken world and say, I can see it. I can see a way to fix this. I can see a way to transform it. And then, because you know it's been done to you, you have the power to do it. Because you're motivated. It's been done for me. Surely I can do it here. And that is the hope and the power of the resurrection in us Christians. And then we have to turn now to the, chat, the question. And here's the most brilliant part of Mark's ending, I think. So, the book ends incredibly abruptly. In fact, in the Greek, it's far more abrupt. It literally ends with the words, they were afraid because. That's it. That's it. It ends abruptly. We don't know if Mark did that on purpose, if he was killed and martyred before he finished. We don't know. But we do know that's how it ends. So, I can appreciate that people later would say, this isn't a very tidy ending. And they try to tag on an ending that seems more similar to the other Gospels. I understand that. But what it does is it, for, it, it, it eliminates the possibility of us trying to understand why God allowed Mark to say only that. What is he getting at with that particular ending? And one of the reasons we hate it, I think one of the reasons the guys were tempted to do it, is because we don't like unresolved things. We like resolution. You know, we all love, well, I don't know if we all love it, Pride and Prejudice. Pick a book. Pride and Prejudice is great because you know why Mr. Darcy behaves the way he does. Because it's revealed. Jane Austen knew that a key to a great story was resolution. Charles Dickens knew it. If you read a Dickens story, you know that idea of it hurts like a Dickens, right? That comes from the fact that every Dickens movie or book is miserable. But it ends with resolution. The bad guys get theirs. And we like resolution. There's uh, an article in The New Yorker from a few years ago by a woman named uh, Maria Konnikova. Here's what she says. When we can't immediately gratify our desire to know, we become highly motivated to reach a concrete explanation. We want to eliminate the distress of the unknown. We want, in other words, to achieve cognitive closure. This term is defined as individuals' desire for a firm answer to a question and an aversion toward ambiguity, a drive for certainty in the face of a less-than-certain world. 
When faced with heightened ambiguity and a lack of clear-cut answers, we need to know, and as quickly as possible. And so she's right. Humans need to have answers. We must have answers. And so I can see why we say, I don't like this ending, that it's just they, they run away afraid. That's not hopeful. Is it hopeful that Christians run away? They abandon Christ at the cross, and then on, on Easter they even abandon him? Is that good? But we have to sit in the tension. Don't add on to it. Figure out why it says it. And one of the things I think we're seeing here is, uh, you know, it leaves us questions, right? This is, again, let's, the ambiguity. One of the reasons it's difficult for us is that we don't know. If it ends the way it is, if we don't know the rest of the story, we don't know if the women ever stopped running. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know if the disciples ever heard. We don't know if Christ even rose, because you'll notice in Mark, there's no evidence of Christ rising. There's no him showing up and talking to Mary, none of that. So there's lots of questions we're left with. And the reason we struggle with it, I think, is because we read it like it's an ending. And I got this while watching a, uh, an interview with a non-Christian author who wrote the series Dune, you know, the, the fantasy series Dune. Uh, Frank Herbert wrote it. And he's doing an interview. And I don't take my theology from these guys, but when he speaks about writing, I should listen. because He's a good writer, a really prolific writer. And he said something brilliant. He said, they asked him about the endings of the books. He said, there are no endings, just places where I decided to stop telling the story. I thought, ha-ha. And this is why Mark is so perplexing. Because you and I read it like it's the end. And Mark is saying, it's not the end. I've just stopped telling the story. But it goes on. It extends onward. Because when he says, I've gone, send them ahead of me. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. If you want to see Christ, the risen Christ, you must follow him. Go to Galilee. And so we are left in the position of the women at the tomb. And we're being told, if you want to see Christ, don't look for science to tell you. Difficult for a guy with education. I want evidence. I want concrete evidence. And the Gospels everywhere say, you're not going to get it because it wouldn't satisfy you anyway. If you want to see the resurrected Lord, follow him to Galilee. And the only thing we're given is his word. See, in the Gospels of, of John, when Thomas is doubting, he says, touch my wounds. Physical evidence. When in Luke, um, in Luke, the, where, what evidence they get of the resurrection? They eat with him on the beach. Mark brilliantly and perplexingly says, there's no evidence. Disciples will follow. If you're not, don't follow. That is difficult. But it is the call of Easter. Did he rise or not? That is the question we're being asked for. Asked, and, and here's where, why it's so difficult for us. Because the resurrection isn't a proof text. He did not rise from the grave to make you believe. He rose from the grave to save sinners. He rose from the grave to save those who already believe. He didn't rise so that you'd have a nice thing, like, oh, I can believe that. It's crazy and remarkable. It must be true. No. His resurrection hasn't convinced anyone. What is, what's convinced people is, is he the Messiah? And they follow him. And this is what he's getting at here. There's no wounds to touch. The resurrection, resurrection doesn't produce faith. It reveals faith. In, in the Gospel of Mark specifically, it says that. And so... We are those women at the tomb, all of us, Christian or not, skeptic, it doesn't matter where you are on your walk, and you're being asked, will you follow him, or will you simply say, I don't believe he's risen, so I'm not going to go to Galilee? Your choice. I hope you choose the right one. If you're a disciple, you will follow. If you're not, you're going to leave here saying, oh, Carl made a clever argument, you know, he's a, he's a funny guy, good looking. <laughs> Sorry. But that's all you're going to come away saying. 
if, if, you're not, if you don't already believe, if there isn't a glimmer of faith in you, you're going to come away from this thinking, it's very nice these people are deluded, and they're happy, and it make, helps them make sense of the world, but it's not true. That's what you're going to think. I understand that. I was that guy. I hope that isn't what you'll come away with. I hope you'll come away saying, I haven't given this enough thought, and let me at least follow him to see if he's in Galilee. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray.